North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Very special Thanksgiving edition of The Impossible State. We have the two superstars of The Impossible State. We've got Dr. Victor Cha, Dr. Sumi Terry here with us. Victor, this week you laid out in great detail a prescription for the incoming president-elect, Joe Biden, and his administration to what they should do about North Korea. Let's discuss. I mean, this is a really important article in foreign affairs. Everybody's talking about it. So let's talk about it with the two best people to talk about it, you and Sue. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, we thought everybody needed a little bit of North Korea with their turkey. That's why we decided to do a Thanksgiving <laughs> show. North Korea and Turkey yeah. kind of goes together well. Right? <laughs> Doesn't Kim Jong-un usually do something disruptive during our Thanksgiving? Well, he likes national holidays, all sorts of U.S. national holidays. July 4th has been a favorite one in the past. Mm -hmm. So who knows? Yeah, we, we don't know. But in this uh, foreign affairs piece, I essentially tried to lay out an argument for what might be considered going forward with North Korea after all the different things that we've tried. You know, we tried summit diplomacy under Trump. We tried strategic patience under Obama. During Trump, we also tried nearly going to war in 2017, the year of fire and fury. So I thought I would try to figure out what haven't we tried yet and how we could put that together in the strategy. So the paper essentially lays out three phases. I mean, first is we got to cap the program. We got to get back to a freeze, which has you know not happened now for the four years of Trump, even though they were doing these summit meetings. And getting back to a freeze is something that the United States has done before. It did it under the Clinton administration. It did it under the George W. Bush administration. And so negotiators know how to do that. There's a roadmap for doing that. But then probably the next phase is the one that would be considered the most, I don't know if it's controversial or, or different or unique, and that's then moving from a freeze to a political track and really focusing on trying to improve the political relationship between the U.S. and the DPRK. The idea behind that being that in the past, we've gone straight from freeze to try to get a nuclear declaration, but the relationship between the U.S. and DPRK is so filled with mistrust, it's impossible to get a real declaration. So the idea was just to try to make progress on the political relationship. It's something that the South Koreans want, it's something that the Chinese want, and use that as a foundation for then trying to work together on things like a declaration and further denuclearization. And then the third phase is once that political relationship is established, to not just work on a declaration, but to work on threat reduction. And that is things like codifying agreements not to transfer to third parties, codifying an agreement on permanently stopping missile tests, permanently stopping nuclear tests, permanently stopping the production of fissile materials. And all of those are interim steps towards denuclearization. So I guess the punchline would be to sort of look at what's been done in the past. Don't take an ABC approach, which is, you know, anything but Clinton, anything but Bush, anything but Obama. Uh, try to take pieces that worked in the past approaches and put them together or rearrange them in a slightly different format to see if any new progress can be reached. Sue, do you want to jump in? 
you know, this is so hard for me because, as you know, I, I'm someone who truly believed that maximum pressure was just the only viable option uh, when it comes to North Korea. You know, it took Iran three years of maximum pressure, sanctions, secondary boycott for Iran to come to the negotiating table. Yep. Sue is the hammer. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel like in 2017, when we did go for maximum pressure, when Trump did, and we got China and Russia to the more on the implementation front, he could have pursued that a little longer, right? Minus the rhetoric of bloody nose, the preventive strike, violent fury, Rocketman on a suicide mission, all of that. But he didn't have to so abruptly turn to symmetry just when sanctions was taking effect. Or maybe not. Maybe we're not be in any different kind of place today. But Point is, Trump did turn to symmetry. He did offer photo ops. And reality is, right now, we are at an impasse. Maximum pressure is no more. Everybody has moved on. China and Russia, not fully on board in terms of implementing sanctions anymore. Region has moved on. So, you know, Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un just exchanged letters, warm letters, okay? They're not love letters, but they're warm letters. And we saw on October 10th, this monster-sized new strategic weapon, Hwasong-16. So now I feel like the Biden administration will be finding itself with even less bargaining power than Trump had in Hanoi, given the impressive progress that North Korea has made in developing their nuclear weapons and missiles and even more. So... Now we are at this stage and, you know, I think the point is, I do think we have to now look at the possibility of an interim deal that at least frees their program and deal with, you know, their program so they don't have a runway nuclear weapons program, um, as Victor pointed out. So it pains me to say it, but I think we have to get there. The problem is, of course, sequencing still what comes first, right? Because we have different expectations in terms of sequencing. And I, I would like to pick Victor's brain about this, sanctions relief, right? Kim wants sanctions relief. That He made it very clear in Hanoi, that's what he wants. So how much to give for this interim deal? You know, we can go to USC to ask for waiving of sanctions for a specific period of time, or for this uh, so-called snapback provisions, that condition the more extension of relief of sanctions on continued denuclearization progress, right? There's a snapback provisions like the, in the case of Iran, JCPOA. So we still have challenges, even if we want to get to an interim deal, right? The sequencing, the sanctions relief, what to give, how much to give, since that's the only leverage we got. And then, of course, verification, which is always the killer. Do you think that there's been too much focus on Iran lately and not enough on North Korea? I mean, North Korea has been absent from the headlines. That's because we always just react to North Korea's tests and provocations. <laughs> We're not that proactive about it. So, yeah, I do think this is normally the pattern. We ignore North Korea until there is a provocation, until there's a missile test. We know North Koreans don't like staying ignored. So if this goes on longer, I do think we will have to expect a provocation. We just pointed out, you know, maybe it's not going to be this Thanksgiving, but we know North Koreans love to conduct a provocation around an election. They need to reset the stage to increase leverage for when they get back to negotiations. And we do not want them to test this Hwasong-16, this missile. We do not want that. Maybe they will get there right away. Maybe they will start with short-range ballistic missile tests and SLBMs. But we do have to focus back on North Korea, and we do have to send the right signal 
to prevent North Korea from conducting this test, or particularly of Hwasong-16. Victor? Let me pick up where Sue left off on sanctions. So I think there's nothing wrong with sanctions. And, you know, we should be continuing to sanction them. At one point, those sanctions are lifted. And in return for what? It's impossible to render a judgment on that outside of an actual negotiation. You can go in with a plan. Like, I'm only going to take off, you know, X sanctions. And if they do this, I'll take off X plus Y or something. We can all say that, but then that plan hits a negotiation and then you're ad-libbing from there. So it's impossible to say exactly what should be lifted, but one can assume that if they are going to engage in some meaningful capping of the program, that there will be some sort of sanctions relief. So I think that's the first point. The second is we have to have denuclearization strategy that does not lead to more nuclear weapons <laughs> because every denuclearization strategy thus far has led to more capability by North Korea. Right. Strategic patience during two, during two terms of Obama, we had 61 ballistic missile tests. Right. Fire and fury, maximum sanction, maximum pressure, 20 ballistic missile tests and a hydrogen bomb test. Right. Summitry, you know, Singapore, Hanoi, all this summit, bromance, love letters, you know, flowers, whatever, chocolates, all that stuff. Still 20 ballistic missile tests since the last summit in Hanoi. So. None of this is working, right? It's all resulting in more, not less capability. And as Sue said, now they, they're displaying that they have an SLBM that they can potentially launch from an operational submarine and this massive ICBM that could have very light nuclear warheads on it that you could put more than one on it. And as Sue said, we don't want them to test that capability. So the whole point of this is we got to try something else, right? And again, pieces look familiar because to freeze the program, to cap the program, you got to do what we've done in the past. But it's really where we go beyond that. And that's where I try to offer some ideas. I don't think they're perfect ideas. I mean, there's a lot that you could say that is wrong with them, but it gives us at least a place to start. The other thing I would say is that I wrote that with two things in mind. The first is that North Korea will probably do a provocation. They will probably do a provocation with the incoming Biden administration, as they did with Obama, as they did with Trump. And that will mean uh, at least six to eight months of sanctions, crisis, you know, whatever you want to call it, more U.N. sanctions, things of that nature. And you have to do that. And so then the question is, what comes after that? Right. What comes after that cycle of sanctions and pressure? So it may not seem like the best thing to do right now, but it's something to think about as a plan going forward. Like, what is the plan that we have on the shelf after we get through this period of sanctioning and uh, crisis? Second is, even though the U.S.-South Korea alliance is not talked about a lot in the paper itself, it's written with the U.S.-South Korea alliance in mind. And what I mean by that is, you know, the Moon government has less than two years left in a single-term presidency. They are hell-bent on engaging with North Korea. Legacy, everything else, ideology, they are hell-bent on doing that. And if there's anything the Biden administration wants to do, it wants to show that its allied relationships in the region are improving, not getting worse, right? because they were so bad under Trump. And so if North Korea does provocations and we're, you know, we have another eight-month or year of no dialogue, that's going to make the Moon government extremely, extremely uncomfortable. They may even go rogue. They may do other things. However, if we have a plan for engagement going forward that can survive more North Korean provocations initially, 
then that might make us put us in a better position to close ranks with South Korea. So it's a strategy that's written for North Korea, but it's keeping in mind that the most important thing to preserve is the alliance. And so in that sense, it's a strategy that signals that the U.S. is interested in serious engagement, including normalization of relations and end of war declaration as a long-term strategy, even if the initial actions by North Korea force us to do other things. Well, at least we know some people that will be coming into the administration, right? Tony Blinken and Sex State and Jake Sullivan, and we know these guys. And we know, for example, Blinken will emphasize on revitalizing U.S. alliances and, you know, huge focus on multilateral approach when dealing with North Korea. So he's going to work very hard to get U.S. and South Korea on the same page when dealing with North Korea. And so I agree. And I think the first thing here is obviously closely coordinating with South Korea and Japan and then trying to prevent what we all expect is coming down the road, right? Testing of major provocation like testing of Hwasong 16, which all the analysts say, if that is ready for flight testing, that's a big deal, right? Because its dimensions um, suggest that it has capacity to loft these multiple nuclear-capable re-entry vehicles, uh, which are going to further advance credibility and reliability of North Korea's capability to strike the United States. This is beyond Hwasong 14s, right, which they tested in November, which showed, you know, they had weapons powerful enough, missiles powerful enough to reach West Coast. Hwasong 15, with Hwasong 15, they demonstrated that they have an ability to reach entire U.S. mainland. But now this missile, is the largest liquid-propelled road mobile ICBM in the world, and we do not want them to get there. So work with our allies, prevent North Korea from testing this. And then I think we really have to, I guess, think about dropping that all-or-nothing approach and getting to an interim deal that we can live with. So I want to talk about Tony Blinken and the rest of President-elect Biden's potential appointments in a second. But first, I want to ask both of you, what do you think Joe Biden's posture towards Kim Jong-un is going to be? I don't personally see a, a bromance coming. Do you guys? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't <laughs> think that's the case. Like I said, I mean, I, I can certainly see President Biden wanting to develop good, close relationships with Moon and with Suga in Japan and with yeah. Moon in Korea. He's certainly not going to hit him up with a bill the way Trump did. Right. He's not going to do that. So I can certainly see that. So I think on Kim Jong-un, I don't think they're going to close off the idea of a summit, but that could only come after all of the work has been done, right? After all the work has been done and all he has to do is come and sign on the dotted line. I mean, under those circumstances, you could see uh, some sort of meeting, but not the way Trump has done it, which is that trying to negotiate a deal on his own and then there being absolutely no follow through and just a lot of theatrics related to that. I don't think that's Biden's style. You know, he's got decades of experience on foreign policy, so I think he'll handle it in a more conventional expert way that uh, will be welcomed, I think, in Seoul and Tokyo. It will not be welcomed in Pyongyang, you know. I think they like the idea of these big glamorous summits with Trump that actually allow them to say that they have been recognized by the United States while they are a nuclear weapons state. I mean, I, I think they love that. And Joe Biden's not going to give them that. No, he won't give them that because he has perspective on the problem. He understands the value of a meeting with the president. So it's very hard for me to imagine that he would do something like that. 
So let's talk about Tony Blinken for a second. Tony Blinken is somebody well-known to CSIS. He used to be at CSIS, actually. He's a longtime aide to Joe Biden, going back to Joe Biden's days in the United States Senate. Somebody well-known to both of you. What do you think of this pick as Secretary of State when it comes to North Korea? Sue started talking about alliances. That's certainly important when it comes to North Korea. No, I mean, obviously, extremely great pick. Blinken is deeply knowledgeable experienced at state, White House, Congress too. He has a moral compass. I mean, he has everything. I think, you know, everybody can agree that he's a great pick. And, you know, again, he's going to focus on multilateral approach to not only North Korea, but all other problems. He's going to try to get all the allies on the same page. I also think in the Korean case, what might be good is I think in terms of even U.S., Korea, Japan, trilateral relationship, he'll focus on that too, because when he was deputy secretary of state, he worked very hard to drive that relationship forward. Uh, he initiated quarterly trilateral meetings, insisting on concrete results. He knows the region. He knows the issues. So it's not somebody who doesn't know Asia or who doesn't know Korea, but he knows the issues very well. And I think in addition to just North Korea and everything else, we talked about alliances. I do think in terms of US, Rock, Japan, trilateral relationship, I think that might be something that we should watch out for, too, that I think he would try to get U.S. government more involved or at least be focused, not completely drop that as not be engaged in it. That would be interesting, too, I think, from Korea's and Japan's perspective. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think he's a great choice. He's all about substance. He's not about flash, even though he is a very stylish guy. He's not about flash. He's not about ego. Doesn't he play guitar or something? Yeah, yeah. And he's got that wavy hair, you know, and he's got the cool dresser and everything. Good suits. Good suits, right? Very important for a yeah. diplomat, good suits. But he's all substance, right? And he's it's not, it's not about him. And, you know, so he's probably for the average American, they're like, who? They probably don't even know who he is. But, of course, everybody in the policy community, everybody in the foreign diplomatic community knows who he is and probably is, I would imagine, very happy with the choice. A very, you know, very competent, professional, non-political diplomat. And as Sue said, when he was deputy on... U.S., Japan, Korea, he used to do these quarterly trilateral meetings at the deputy foreign minister level between the U.S., Japan, and Korea, largely because he knew that those were two important allies. And he knew that by holding a meeting four times a year at his level, you know, it would force all three governments to work together because they would always have to produce a deliverable four times a year for this trilateral meeting wherever it took place. So, again, knows how to use the machinery of government to preserve, cultivate, and move alliances and multilateral groupings forward. So I think it's a really good choice. How about the pick of Jake Sullivan, also known, very well known to both of you, uh, as National Security Advisor? I love Jake. I mean, I do. <laughs> I've interacted with him and he's super smart. Again, I love his disposition, which is he's calm. He's a nice guy. I think that goes, by the way, with Tony Blinken too. They're just not this kind of posing. I mean, so is Jake too. So obviously also very knowledgeable, very thoughtful, strategic mindset, knows the region well. Again, these are just two excellent choices. You can't complain. I mean, who's better? Somebody also, another great pick, Linda Thomas-Greenfield to be ambassador to the UN. Really strong foreign policy expert. How important is the, is the UN going to be in the equation of North Korea in a Biden administration? I mean, I think it'll be very important. 
the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. was kind of absent during the removal of the North Korean human rights issue from the U.N. Security Council during the Trump administration. And after, you know, the Commission of Inquiry report, a U.N. report had recommended that it be on the U.N. Security Council for discussion. So, um, you know, very important role, very important person in terms of organizing sanctions and resolutions if North Korea does more testing with regard to human rights issues. And if we ever get on a diplomatic track, you know, the ability to bring the international community along on the diplomacy. So I don't know her, but what I've heard of her has been all good. She's a career foreign service officer. So you can see with this foreign policy team, there's a lot of experience there, right? A lot of experience not political. Yeah, none of these people are political. No, they're not. All of these people could work across the aisle and have worked across the aisle. Yeah, and so that's a very refreshing thing to say, you know, not divisive people at all, right? Like, so I know Jake too, and, you know, he, he actually came with us when we went to Korea for our annual CSIS Chungang Ilbo conference a few years ago. So got to spend some time with them, you know, just a very sharp, really smart guy, really very strategic and can think across many different issues. And so I think it's a great choice. I actually thought that they might have him doing domestic policy because, you know, we have so many issues domestically compared to COVID and everything else. But if I hadn't thought that, I mean, for sure, he was a shoe in for National Security Advisor. Well, that shows you the range that Jake has. I mean, usually people are either domestic or foreign policy, you know, oriented, and he can do both. That's why we thought, you know, he could potentially do domestic. He's only 43 years old. I know, he's young on top of Yeah, and so if you think about an NSC meeting under Biden, if you think about who's around the table, right? I mean, it's Tony Blinken, it's Jake Sullivan, you know, everybody, the rumor is Michelle Flournoy at DOD, Avril Haines at DNI. I mean, First, there's, you know, there's a lot of experience. Second, there's a lot of continuity. Oh, and the UN ambassador has been elevated to cabinet level. So Carrie that- is the climate czar, right? You look at the people around the table, they are all experienced. They've all worked with each other before, right? They know each other well, and they're all young. And so it could be a very different look for U.S. foreign policy that will make the United States not look like a creakety old hegemon that's on the decline, but, you know, young people, active, with new ideas, but with a lot of policy experience. They're not like newbies, right? They've been here and they've done this all before, so they have a lot of policy experience. So it's a new face, I think, for U.S. foreign policy. And for us, that's what we see every day at CSIS and we see in some of our peer institutions. So, you know, I don't want to say a return to normalcy, but it's it's more of what we see every day in our existence in the foreign policy, national security space. Yeah. And I guess maybe in a sense, we took it for granted because it kind of was what we've always expected. And not only did we take it for granted, there are people who took it for granted and criticized it, right? Calling it inside the beltway, the blob, the deep state, all that, the swamp, you know, all these sorts of things. But I mean, who around the world would not like to see the return of sort of competency professionalism in foreign policy again, a U.S. foreign policy. I mean, I think the entire world is going to welcome that with open arms. I'm sure there is a huge sigh of relief all around the world. We have to get to January 20th first. Except probably like in Russia and China and North Korea, right? And and maybe the Philippines, right? Maybe they liked sort of the Trump style. And the other, you know, the, the focus on democratic values and human rights, something that's been missing 
you know, there was major democratic erosion happening around the world today, like major democratic erosion. I mean, all of the metrics show that freedom is declining around the world. And so it's really important that the United States sort of come back and establish this as an important piece of our foreign policy, because that will change the way the world thinks about it. How do you think North Korea is going to view a Biden administration, Joe Biden personally, and people like this on his national security team? I think Kim Jong-un is disappointed. I don't know if he's going to kick himself for sort of missing once in a lifetime opportunity under Trump, because I think he could have truly gotten a deal where U.S. troops in South Korea was potentially on the table for negotiation. Things that's going to be unthinkable, I think, under the Biden administration. So Kim had an opportunity uh, with Trump, which he didn't seize. I don't think he's going to welcome this because we're dealing with a lot of experienced people, which means back to more of a traditional way of dealing with North Korea. So hopefully, you know, maybe the Biden administration will take on Victor's advice and go for a new bold approach. But from Kim Jong-un's perspective, it's going to be hard work. It's not going to be something that's going to be easy. Yeah, actually have to, you're going to, there's have to be substance. Uh, so even if there's an interim deal, it's not going to be an easy process, right? The Biden administration is going to pursue more of a principled approach. There's no more flashy, just sort of the photo op kind of, I, this is not what the Biden administration is going to pursue. So I think I'm sure Kim Jong-un is disappointed. I just don't know what his next steps are at this point. I just hope that he hangs on and does not revert to provocation because there will be a mistake too, because you know North Korea overplayed its hand when President Obama first came into the office, and it only led to two-term strategic patience policy where not much happened with North Korea and the U.S. just pursued sanctions approach. So hopefully Kim just does not revert back to provocation and, and wait a little bit and continue with his wait-and-see approach. Do you both think this becomes a major focus of foreign policy and national security policy in the Biden administration? I think from a standing start, no, just because there's so many other things on his plate. I mean, mostly domestic, COVID, the economy, race relations, and then climate change, right? And then China. So I think there are many other issues. The thing is, is that, I mean, Sue has that line, right? I refuse to be ignored, right? That's fatal attraction. Yeah, that's... Sue's fatal attraction line. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. And so, the, you know, they may force themselves onto the agenda by doing provocations. And what concerns me is that I think Kim Jong-un and the leadership there look at Biden and they see strategic patience. That's what I worry about. And then, you know, they may do a provocation just to say, you know, we're not going to stand for strategic patience anymore, right? And then that could set off all sorts of dynamics. But I agree. I mean, North Korea never fails to miss an opportunity. They had an opportunity with Obama. I mean, look at what Obama did with Burma, uh, with Iran, with Cuba. I mean, they had an opportunity, they blew it. And then with Trump, you know, we nearly went to war in 2017. But with these summits in 2018 and 2019, there was a real opportunity to change the course of history on the Korean Peninsula. But the problem was you had two leaders who were willing to meet, neither of whom really had a plan or was prepared. And for that reason, they didn't bring their domestic side with them. You know, they didn't get all their ducks in a row at home before they went to the table. And then when they were at the table, they each had one pitch. And when it didn't sync up, they're like, okay, that's all I got. And then they left, 
right? I mean, it's just they had the chance to change the course of history on the Korean Peninsula. And it was, you know, two leaders who liked the show, but were really not ready in terms of the substance of trying to work out a deal. You know, this was not Reagan and Gorbachev at Reykjavik, right? It wasn't. These were two leaders who just liked the show and were really not sure what they wanted to do after their first move. Well, we'll have to watch this all very closely. And I'm looking forward to handicapping further Biden administration moves with the both of you. So thanks for all this insight today. I know our listeners are going to really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.